As you are seated now, would you open the Bible, your copy of the Word of God, to Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. We'll read through verse 11. Galatians 4, continuing this study through this book from Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to the churches in Galatia, and over halfway through now, this study, Galatians 4, verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Father, we give this time to you as well, Lord, intentionally taking time, Lord, to hear what you would have to say. Lord, to learn your truth, the universal, eternal truth. God, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to hear and to understand and to apply so that you would be exalted, that Jesus would be proclaimed In his name we pray, amen. Well, I've got to tell you, I've got to warn you up front that this is going to be one miserable sermon. (laughs) Some of you said, I already knew that. (laughs) This one, more than usual, is filled with misery, but it may not be because of me only. (laughs) Hopefully not, though my delivery may be a factor. It's because we're going to be faced with the reality of the misery that we cause to ourselves very, very often. According to a recent study in the peer-reviewed journal Nature, on average, every day, a person has about 6,000 thoughts. 6,000 thoughts go through our minds every day. That's a lot of thoughts. What brings those up? What causes those thoughts? Well, increasingly, of course, studies are showing a dramatic effect of our diminishing thinking ability our decreasing attention span, our distractibility because of a combination of social media and smartphones and and the dangers involved in all of those. And one study even mentioned that uh, on average, a person thinks about, talks about himself 30 to 40% of the time, but on social media, you double that. 80% of the time we're on social media, we talk about ourselves. But leaving just all of that aside, just take a human being, uh, those 6,000 thoughts that we have every day going through our minds, how are those characterized? What, what are those made up of? Well, according to the National Science Foundation, on average, 80% of our thoughts every day are negative in some way. And around 90 to 95% of our thoughts are just repeated from yesterday. <laughs> what are we to take from any of that? Well, for one thing, we do a lot more thinking probably than we realize, but it's more negative than we may realize. And we don't really have a whole lot of new thoughts every day, comparatively speaking, if we're left to ourselves. But in Christ, we have been made new from within. We are new creatures, new creations. We're born again, regenerated, made new. And so as a result of what God has done in us because of Jesus, we should have different thoughts probably more positive, probably far more positive thoughts than we have. 
about our salvation, not as many negative thoughts and and some newer thoughts than we've had before. Think about some of the blessings just in Galatians that we've seen because of our salvation and and what God has done in our salvation in us. We've seen that we are delivered, chapter 1, verse 4, we're delivered from this present evil age. This is not our home. We won't be here forever, and we're not subject to the, the, the worries and the anxieties that come from this world. We're, we're delivered from this present evil age. Chapter 1, verse 12, this gospel that we have believed is a divine gospel. This one that we believe has come from God himself. Man didn't make this up. Chapter 1, verse 15, we're called into this gospel by God's grace. God's grace. None of us has ever earned anything from God. None of us ever could. As hard as we ever tried, we never could earn anything, but God's given it to us by His grace. Chapter 2, verse 4, we are given freedom in Christ in this gospel. Before Christ, we are enslaved, we're imprisoned, we're, we're held back by sin, and we're, we're condemned before God, but in Christ, we have freedom. In Christ, we learned that the gospel is the truth. It is true. It's always been true. It always will be true. Chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 14, it's not made up. We are justified. We're declared totally righteous by God in Jesus through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16, not by anything we have ever done or ever could do because Jesus did it for us. Jesus, the very Son of God, loved us and gave himself for us as we've seen in chapter 3, chapter 2, verse 20. I mean, how amazing is that? That the Son of God Himself gave Himself for us. This is, these, are, these are amazing thoughts. These are positive thoughts, but these are true thoughts. This is divine truth from God. He, not only that, but we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit Himself in our hearts, chapter 3, verses 2 and 14, and chapter 4, verse 6. He's in our very thought center, our heart. When you see the word heart in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it's not just feelings. More often, it it includes our thoughts and our feelings. It's the center of who we are, who we are inside. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within us there. We are sons of Abraham and heirs of the blessing of God in chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. We live by faith, chapter 3, verse 11. We're redeemed from the curse of the law by Christ himself, chapter 3, verse 13. We have the promise of God through faith in Jesus Christ, chapter 3, verse 22. We have become sons of God, brothers and sisters, chapter 3, verse 26. We are clothed with Christ, verse 27. We're equal before him, verse 28. And we are heirs of the promise, verse 29. We've even been adopted by God, chapter 4, verse 5. So many good things, new things to us to think about because these thoughts are not natural to us. These aren't things that would just occur to us on a daily basis. Uh, Hey, I'm a child of God. (laughs) I've got the truth of the gospel from God himself because Jesus gave himself for me and the Holy Spirit's living within me. These thoughts don't come to us on our own. God has told us these things. These didn't arise from within us. God has revealed these to us. The revelation of Jesus Christ received through faith brings all of this about. And so what Paul does here in these few short verses is point out to us how much better things are for us now in Christ because of what God has done through faith in Jesus. In verse 8, What he does here in chapter 4 is, before Christ, he reminds us, it was pretty miserable. 
And then he says, you're falling back into that repetitive and negative thought life all over again, verses 9 and 10. And it's a return back to that miserable condition. And finally, he's going to point out in verse 11 that returning back to that misery just spreads the misery around. So as miserable as it sounds, it's going to be helpful, Lord willing, beneficial to us to see this, to see the truth, the reality of what we do to ourselves, how we fall back into misery the misery of sin, foolishness, instead of the wisdom, the truth of God. As Christians, you may have heard this before, you may not have heard this before, but as Christians, we have no excuse if we're miserable. God has given us His Son. God has given us His Spirit. God has given us His Word. God has given us the truth and the gospel and all the things that we've been talking about for the last few minutes. He's given us so much. And we know that we're not going to be here forever. He's telling us about our life now and forever. And so whatever happens is preparing us for that. We don't really have any excuse for misery. We have all the excuse in the world for joy. All the reason in the world for joy. So let's look at the three parts of this paragraph just to to experience all over again the misery (laughs) that we had before and that we can fall back into when we're not thinking rightly. Number one, let's look at verse eight. Remember previous misery. Our previous misery. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So he says, think back to that time before you knew anything about God. The word here is is oida, it means the facts about God. Before you learn anything about him, what was life like? And now as a reminder, the basic information about God is clear in creation, right? God tells us that. But you and I and and everybody else who's without Christ, before Christ, here's what we did. We looked at creation and we rejected what God showed us in creation. We said, no, I want something different. That was our former condition. Remember that Paul was writing to the believers in Galatia, the, in the, the believers in the churches in the area. By the way, if they weren't in church, they wouldn't have heard this. So praise God they were in church. Praise God you're here in church this morning. But this was their former way of life. It was a call to remember the previous misery. Why do we call it misery? Well, because he says they were enslaved to false gods. Now, we keep using this word enslaved, slaves and slavery in Galatians. It comes up a lot. Today, it's a pretty offensive word for people because it was a legally sanctioned evil that did happen in our country and for too many years. But unfortunately, it's a reality that's been in the world since the beginning of uh, after the fall and through today. In fact, some even claim that through human trafficking, there are more slaves now in America than there were even in the period prior to the Civil War. But comparisons aren't always very helpful. They can certainly break down. But in this context here, the slave, what that means to be a slave is to be completely devoted to the one who owns you. We're owned, enslaved. We have a master who owns us, and we live in total service to that master. And you may have a good master, or you may have a bad master, but as a slave, you have no say either way what kind of master you have. And you have no recourse but to obey and to submit to that master. Now, let's just be honest. If a human being thinks that he can own another human being, his goodness is at best suspect anyway, (laughs) right? 
But in this case, Paul's not talking about a human being who's owning people, owning slaves. What's interesting is that Paul doesn't even specify any particular entity at all. What the Galatians had been enslaved to were those that by nature are not gods. That's what he calls them. That's what he says about them. It's a blanket statement that covers anything and everything that people devote themselves to and worship that is not God. Those that by nature are not gods. That's what he says. This is important because God, the one true God, is the only one who is by nature God. His very nature and existence. Now, without getting too complicated or too philosophical, this is what we mean in in theology when we talk about the simplicity of God. The, The simplicity of God. He's not a complex being in the sense where he's made up of different parts and pieces, and you can kind of take parts away and add different things and and understand him better. He he's made up into indivisible parts. You can't divide God up. You can't split him up into different parts. If you took anything away from God, he wouldn't still remain God. He wouldn't keep being the same God that he is, that he exists in. His very nature is God. If you took away his eternality, you don't have God anymore if he's not eternal. Or, or if you let him keep his eternality and you say, well, I just don't think he knows everything. He's not omniscient. Well, it's a, you don't have God anymore. By his nature, everything about him is eternality, his omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, his holiness, his power, his love. All of the things that make up who God is, is what God is in, in, in completion, in, in totality. God is simple in that sense. He's perfect. He's complete in every way. He's God. So there's nothing else that exists like that in the universe as God that that just remains by nature as God. There are things, there are people that take that claim, that, that have that title, but they're not God. In the case of pagan gods, mythological gods, foreign deities, they're not God. Why not? Well, we know that they came from man's imagination, but they're so similar to man because they can be changed, right? So many of the gods of other peoples, of, of other religions can be ignored. They can be conquered. They can be manipulated. All other gods in any other system of the world, any and all other gods can be pleased by mankind in some way. There is some kind of potential for mankind either to, to say things or do things that please these other gods. But because of our sin... Mankind can never please or bring anything to the true and living God. We we can't do it. There's no way for us to do that. We can't change him. We can't influence him. The living God is God by nature, and there's nothing that he can receive from us or that would change us. So it's a fundamental difference between the true and living God and every other thing that has that title. So to refer to anything that is not by nature a God is anything not God, right? That's what Paul is saying here. Those that by nature are not gods. So this, of course, would be true of idols. Idol worship was certainly more common in ancient times, but it's still practiced today. In fact, it's part of the third largest religion in the world, Hinduism. Idols play a large part. Now, you've got some verses in your notes, and I encourage you to read these. Jeremiah chapter 10, Habakkuk chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 44. Uh, Just 
pointing out the ridiculousness of idols. That people would cut down a tree, you know, they would plant it and, they would, and they'd water it and then they'd cut it down and half of the wood they'd take and they'd burn it with fire uh, so they can warm themselves and they can cook their food and then the other half they carve into an idol and fall down and worship it. Like the ridiculousness of that against the true and living God. Uh, what profit is an idol? You have to spend your money on it. You, you give your silver and your gold and stone and wood. You give all these things to create it and it doesn't do anything. It's just a teacher of lies. Uh, how much more our idols of self-love and social media addiction and, and whatever else we worship and we devote ourselves to, how much more ridiculous are these things? Read those verses, study those verses. Here's the reality. Those idols, those gods, are all the things that by nature are not gods, and they have some power. They have some power in our lives, and here's why. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that demons are behind idols. He says an idol is nothing, but so then what's the big deal? Well, he says except that pagans, when they sacrifice to idols, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. He says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So worshiping idols and worshiping God, those things are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. There's one true and living God. Only he receives worship. You have Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Psalm 106 there. So this is not a scare tactic. This is not legend and myth. This is the truth of what God reveals to us about idols. Whether we carve them out of stone or whether we invent them in our mind and devote ourselves to something other than God, this is what idols are with demons behind them. But the key, it, the key to remember here is that we do that to ourselves. We're the ones that make those idols, This isn't something that God does. God didn't make the Galatians before Jesus worship those not-gods that act like they are. The only reason they had power over us is because we take them, we invent them, and we make them our master. We put them over us as idols. That's the way it works. They really aren't anything until we start worshiping them. Setting them over us as gods, our masters are slaves, demons become attached to them, and then we're under the control of those idols and through demons. So Paul points us and them, the Galatians, back to that time. Remember how ridiculous that was to worship idols, to worship anything that isn't God. Remember how miserable a condition that was. We were enslaved to that. Now that's former, and he's speaking to Christians. Right? He's speaking to the, the Christians who are in the churches in Galatia, and the same applies to Christians today. Christian brother and sister, we can worship a whole host of things that are not God, and how ridiculous and foolish and miserable is that? So we have this new position. It should stay this way, but it doesn't, which leads us to number two in verses nine and 10, where he points them back to he's saying, you're returning to past misery. That's number two in our notes, returning to past misery. But now, he says, that means that here's the condition they are as opposed to where they should be. Remember, there was the former, they were this way, but now they were here, but now they're going back, back to the old. But before we look at that, and because there is so much misery involved in this, in this sermon, let's think about, don't miss this new position that they had that we have in Christ. 
even if we become tempted to turn back. Again, this isn't everybody. This is for those who believe in Jesus Christ. He is their Lord. They have repented of their sins. They believed in him. He's redeemed us. This is for Christians. He says, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Do you see this? In in verse 8, you didn't know God, but now you do. In verse 8, before you knew God, now you know God. And he knows you. Now let's think about our side of knowing God first. Again, all people know of God, right? You look outside, you look in the sky, you look in the seas, you can tell there is God. Romans 1 tells us God made it purposefully, intentionally clear. In all of creation, there is a God. That's what Romans 1.20 refers to, his divine nature. Remember how only God exists as God just by his very nature? That's clear in creation. All people know he's God. They know he's powerful. God intentionally showed that to all of us. It renders all people before God without excuse in judgment before him. Because when we, when we reject God's truth, his revelation and creation, we're rejecting him. We're rejecting Jesus in favor of something else. And again, we've gone through Romans 1, that's what it explains. But if a person accepts the revelation of God in creation, he then seeks to know him more fully, which happens in the Word of God. Psalm 19 teaches that interaction, how God reveals himself in the world and in the Word, and how it comes together to save us. The Word reveals Jesus as God. He's the fullness of God. The person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Colossians 1 in Hebrew says, is God. That's who Jesus is. John 14, 9, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He says in 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So in creation and the world, we learn something about God, but in the gospel, in the word of God, we learn the full truth. The gospel of God, we learn the full truth about who God is, about who Jesus is, who we are, why we need Savior, why we need to be saved. And we come to know God. That's what the gospel reveals to us. That's what the word of God reveals to us, who God is. But even more, not just in the gospel do we come to know God, he comes to know us. Now again, as God, he knows every person. He knows us all better than, our, than we know ourselves. He formed us, he created us. But this sense of knowing is in a relational sense. God comes to know us relationally as sons as children of God. That's the sense that Jesus says when he says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Jesus knows us. And they follow me, Jesus says. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. We know him and he knows us and that is eternal life. It's a relationship. It's not just knowing about God, knowing of God. I know who the president is. He's in the news a lot, right? I know who the governor of the state of Arizona is. I know who the mayor of, of uh, well, Chino Valley is. I don't, I don't live here in Prescott Valley. I know who the mayor here in Prescott Valley is as well. And Prescott, but I don't know them, right? I've never met them. So it's, it's different just knowing someone and knowing about someone and really relationally knowing someone. This is a a relationship with God where he knows us and we know him and it's a growing relationship and it's a relationship that lasts forever. 
And with that relationship, like we saw before, we have deliverance from this present evil age. We have a divine gospel. It's God's grace. It's freedom in Christ. It's the truth. It's justification. It's the love of the Son of God himself. It's the Holy Spirit within us. We become sons of Abraham, heirs of the blessing of God, faith. We have redemption, the promise of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are sons of God. You're saying, why are you talking so fast? Because there's so much, (laughs) and it's so exciting. And it's so amazing that God would love us to give us all of this so that he adopts us as sons, not because of anything we could ever do, but because of faith in Jesus. We have all of that and more. That is our state. Don't miss this state that we have now, brothers and sisters, when we believe in Jesus Christ. So we had the former experience of not knowing God. It was miserable. It was slavery. We have the present and the future forever reality of knowing God and Him knowing us that we just looked at. So tell me, how in the world would we ever turn back to the misery of his slavery again? That's what Paul asks here. Look at verse 9. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Now, this is a very clear reference again to verse 3 that we looked at last week. The same word for elementary principles, it clearly refers back to that so much that the translators have actually supplied the words uh, of the world here in verse 9. They don't appear in the original, but since it's such a clear reference to where they do appear in verse 3, they've brought them forward for us. But what are these elementary principles? Again, they're what's common knowledge to people in the world. It's just what everybody knows. Everybody knows to be true. It comes from man's imagination It comes from our intellect, our reasoning capabilities, but it's everything that we come up with that's not what God said, that's in contrast, that's opposed to what God has said. It can include superstition, astrology, any world religion, any philosophy, and even pseudosciences. You say, what is pseudoscience? Well, it's the false sciences of the origins the, the, the scientists have come up with ideas about where we might have come from other than what God has said. It can include the, what's passed off as scientific and factual in psychology. All of the elementary principles, all of the things that just everybody knows. Everybody knows this and everybody knows that. But how are these described here? He says they are weak and worthless. Remember that anything that is not by nature God is not God, it, it, and only God is powerful. Therefore, whatever does not come from God that we worship as idols is weak, and it's worthless. Weak is to be without strength, inefficient, it's imperfect. Worthless means something of little to no value, right? These are simple ideas, we understand what these mean. But all of the things that man comes up with to explain what God has already said is weak and worthless. But the Galatians had tossed aside all of the truth that we've been talking about, all of that good news, all of the gospel. They're tossing it aside in favor of what's weak and worthless and not God and not from God. What a terrible idea (laughs) that they were doing. And yet we can fall into the same trap. We can do the same thing. He says, how can you turn back? The word means a total 180 degree turn. You were going the right direction. You've turned completely around. You're going the wrong way. You're going the opposite direction. But notice this. The Galatians were not being tempted to go back into idol worship. They were not being tempted. That's not how they were being tempted. 
Remember, they were being tempted into the Judaism of the time, the religion of obeying the law. Not the true Old Testament love of God, but the works-based system that the religious leaders had come up with. That's what they were being tempted to go back into or to go into. In this statement, what Paul does is effectively he condemns the worship of anything and everything other than faith in Jesus Christ as weak, as worthless, as not as God, elementary principles. He's saying adherence to legalistic Judaism is, in effect, no different from paganism. It's still weak and worthless, and you're still slaves to the rules and laws rather than sons by adoption. Can you imagine a former Pharisee saying this? The way that he had been trained his entire life. Here's the law. Memorize the law. Obey the law. Punish those who don't. Look down on those who don't. Law, law, law. He's saying that's all. It's, the, it's essentially the same as paganism. What's the difference between legalistic Judaism and paganism? Nothing. For that matter, brother and sister, what's the difference between legalistic Christianity and paganism? Again, essentially nothing. Because in both cases, Jesus is removed, and it's your works, your obedience, that tries to earn you salvation. Nothing in the, other than the gospel in the Word of God can save you, or me, or anybody It is only faith in Jesus Christ that leads you to repent of your sins and to turn to him in faith. That's it. Brothers and sisters, that's why we we systematically go through the scriptures. That's that's why we go verse by verse and, and sometimes word by word and paragraph by paragraph through the word of God so that we can have these thoughts given to us, not rules and not laws, not here's what you need to obey this week. Here's how to be a better person this week, as we talked about, as Pastor Kyle was saying this morning, in resolutions, you know, I resolve to do this this year. We're not trying to change our outward behavior. Our hearts are the problem. Our hearts have the solution of Jesus in the gospel. So even though everything we learn and talk about may not be immediately and easily applicable Everything that we talk about on a Sunday morning, you may not be able to say, hey, on Wednesday morning, I'm going to remember all the three points or the ten points or the application. We may not be able to get all that, but we're systematically learning God's thoughts, his words, so that we can replace all of the elementary principles of the world that get so pushed on our minds and hearts all day throughout the day. And it's to make their way, the the words of God's into our heart and our minds so that we think differently instead of that negative and repetitive that we always come up with every day. We have God's word. These elementary principles are so strong. They have the claim of being gods. They're so powerful. They have demons behind them. The world buys into them and and throws them at us all the time. The world shames us and cancels us if we don't buy into what everybody knows, the elementary principles of the world. These things enslave us. They imprison us. There's so much power here. But Paul says they're weak and they're worthless. How can they be both? How can they be so strong and yet so weak and worthless? Because they're weak and worthless to save us. They cannot save us. The rules that we come up with and the laws that we come up with and how we try to obey, they're unable to do anything that they promise to do for us. Well, if I just do these things, then I'll get that. I'll try to be a better person and I'll get respect and I'll get admiration and and I'll please God and, and all of these good things will happen. They're truly weak 
and worthless. 1 Corinthians 8 says an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. But they have so much power over those who obey them. Not just for the people who are without Jesus. Not just for people who are outside the church. Christians, believers, these worthless, weak and worthless elementary principles, these things that are not God can have power over us. Why? Watch this. Look at verse 9. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles whose slaves you want to be once more? You want these things in charge of you. You and I desire these worthless things, these weak things, these idols, things that are not God. We want them to rule over us. We, we desire them to be in control of us. We want to be completely devoted to them as slaves are to a master. You say, what? That doesn't talk. That's not me. I don't want something in charge of me like that. It is, and it's so because we prove it every time we turn back to them and away from faith in Jesus. Your will, your desire, what you want comes from your heart. It's the source of the problem. You want what you want, and God does not promise to give you everything you want, does he? Sin promises that. Sin promises, I'll give you what you want. I'll make you happy. I'll give you the things that you're after. The elementary principles of the world promise that, and none of it can fulfill anything. They can't fulfill any of those empty promises. Tragically, you and I can fall into desiring the elementary principles of the world that are weak and worthless instead of what is infinitely strong and eternally beneficial, knowing God and Him knowing us. <laughs> it's like, you know, we, we want riches, but we'll take, a, we'll take a picture of the riches instead of the riches of God. You know, we want to have the Lamborghini, but instead of the one that we can drive, we'll take the matchbox car, <laughs> We're falling for what's so much less and isn't the real thing. How does it happen that we could ever return to the misery of what's false? We do it to ourselves. It's not God who leads us that way. It's we who, who, who turn back to those things, who, who fall back into believing what's weak and worthless because we want those things in charge of us. God gives us all that we could ever need, his word and faith and repentance, his son, his spirit. He holds us fast. He gives us precious promises, his love, so much more, but we don't want any of that. We don't want anything that God has because all of that leads to his glory and we want glory for ourselves. I don't want anything that God's going to give because the glory goes to God and I want the glory for myself. So we go back to something, anything other than the gospel we go back to thoughts that everybody around us knows and everything around us is teaching us and pushing into our mind rather than what God says. And it happens too quickly, too easily, and too commonly. It can happen to God's people. You and me, brother and sister, we can fall for these things. We can believe in these things. It's when our affections, our desires, our will, what we want is directed away from Jesus onto something else anything else. It's foolish. It's ridiculous. But we do it. It's anything that we place our trust in, that we get our comfort from, that we derive hope from, that's not the living God. Those things become our God all over again, just as they were before we were in Jesus, before we came to faith in Him. They become our gods all over again. We become willing, devoted worshipers, followers, obeyers but they never deliver anything. 
that we're after. Verse 10 is exhibit A in the evidence for Paul. Maybe it's exhibit B. Before it was, it was circumcision. Like here's the proof that you're falling back into this. But here's another proof. He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What's the problem with that? Well, these are divisions in the Jewish observance, law observances. Days mean the Sabbath days of every week. The months are the new moon celebrations that they participated in. The seasons are the annual feasts like Passover and Tabernacles. The years are Sabbath years. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. But essentially what would happen was that times and days would get split up. And these are the religious days. All the rest of these days are yours. Do whatever you want. Don't do whatever you want. Try to be good. But these days really obey the law. That's not devotion to God. That's checking boxes on certain days. That's obeying the law when it's appropriate, when we want to, when we feel like it. That's not devotion to God. Devotion to law following and rule following is only part-time. Devotion to Jesus is full-time. It's all the time. Not perfect. (laughs) We're not perfect here, but we're devoted to him. So to resolve any questions, I just want to make sure that we're not misunderstanding. Paul is not condemning any holidays or you know, observing celebrations or festivals. Um, you have Acts chapter 20, verse 16 in your notes. Paul sailed past Ephesus because he was trying to hurry to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. He, he still observed holidays and, and those things. It wasn't the celebration. The word he uses here is the, the word for religious observance of it. He, the people were carefully watching. They, they planned for it. They observed religiously and legally these things because they bought into the wrong teaching that they had to please God. And that was how to do it. So he's pointing out, he's showing us, he's teaching us anything, even good things. Even things that we think are are good and healthy, when they take us and they give us hope instead of God and they comfort us instead of Jesus, we trust these things to, to just convince us that we're okay with God, that we're good on good terms with God. Anything that doesn't start with J and end with Jesus. <laughs> Is wrong. It's not good. It's not helpful. Jesus is our only, our full, and our true hope. It's not, be, you know, if someone, Lord willing, somebody will ask you, what is the reason for the hope that you have? That the answer to that sentence should never start with I. Oh, because I, no. Well, it's because of my, stop. The reason for the hope that we have is Jesus. The, the hope that we have, the reality of the faith, our faith is Jesus. <laughs> it's not because of our anything. It's not because I anything. Jesus is our all. So we've looked back at our previous misery. We've, we've seen how we can be tempted to return to past misery. What's the result? Briefly, verse 11, the result is provoking more misery. <laughs> provoking even more misery. Paul says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Way back in chapter one, we looked at the possible timeline of Paul and Galatia. He may have been there for two years, uh, serving, ministering, preaching, teaching, loving, discipling, guiding, continual ministry for two years, plus after he left, countless hours of prayers, writing this letter so much, and for what? If these Galatians had professed faith in Jesus and they turned back into devoting themselves to not gods, what was the point of any of that? 
of all of that labor. He says, it's a fear. I'm afraid that it may have all been for nothing. It's the word that means fear, and it caused him anguish. It caused Paul misery that it may have been for nothing. Their misery of trying to revive their previous misery was spreading it all around, even to Paul, who was miles away in Ephesus as he wrote this. You've heard that before, misery loves company, right? It's true. But Paul's not giving up on them because God hasn't given up on them. At times, he has some very strong words for them. You know, you remember he said, I, I'm astonished at you. I'm ashamed of you, <laughs> essentially was what he said. Who has bewitched you, foolish Galatians? Are you so foolish? He's, he's got some strong things to say to them, but he hasn't given up on them. Because all who, remain, who, all who truly believe in Jesus will remain in Jesus. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. There he's not talking to the Christians. He's talking to those who made a profession but didn't truly believe. All of us who truly believe in Jesus will remain in Jesus. We may be tempted to fall back into those worthless things, those weak and worthless elementary principles that are in the world. But we'll be, we will wake up. The Holy Spirit will wake us up. He'll use our mind, our hearts, our conscience. What about you, brother, sister? What about you, man, woman, young man, young woman here? Where are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? What do you dwell on? What do you think about? Of your 6,000 thoughts that go through your mind every day, how many of them are about Jesus? How many of them are about the gospel and all that God is if you had 6,000 thoughts in a day and all 6,000 of them were on God, you would not exhaust who God is. We would not plumb the depth. Even if you had two days and you didn't repeat any from the first day to the second day, you still wouldn't exhaust all that God is. How many of your thoughts are repetitive and negative, as the experts tell us? Can you tell the difference between what the world feeds you and what God says? Can you identify those things? Can you replace them with God's truth? The thoughts that we have so often come from our desires. What do you desire? What do you want more than anything? Do you truly want the glory of God to be, to be revealed to everyone? So that everyone, instead of looking at me, instead of thinking about me, they're thinking about Jesus. When he comes back, that's what it's all going to be about. Even now, that's what it's all about, even if we don't recognize it, but we try to make it about ourselves so often. But when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. That's what the end is all about. That's what we're looking forward to. Even forever in heaven, it's not about my happiness, what God's doing for me. Heaven's all about the glory of God, and our, our, all of our attention is on Him. Is that what we want? Is that what we're truly after? Every day of our life and what we're thinking about. Our application here is to devote yourself to Jesus. Devote yourself to Jesus. You will never run out of things to think about when you think about Jesus, when you learn about Jesus, when you understand who he is, when you see and understand what he's done and what he's doing now, what he will do. It's all Jesus. It's a new year. As we start this new year, we can repeat the things that we did last year. We can have some of the same thoughts and do some of the same things, or we can devote ourselves to Jesus. We can grow in love for Him. We can sing to Him. We can think of Him. We can act for Him because of our love for Him, because of how we're thinking about Him 
not lists. We do have a list, of course, a list of Bible verses for a reading plan. We've got other plans back there. Just so often when, when someone asks me, you know, I, can you help me? I don't feel like I'm growing in my faith. The first question is, how are you in the Word? Because the number one indicator, according to studies that have been done for decades now, many, many years, the, the studies that have come about, the number one indicator for growth in your faith is how often are you in the Word of God? How often and how much and what are you doing in the Word of God? Are we just reading it and then checking the boxes on the list? Are we in it once a week when we go to church? Are we in it every day? Get into the Word of God because the Word of God reveals who us, to us who Jesus is. So we can learn more of Jesus and to learn more of Him is to love Him more and to grow in faith to understand these truths, to replace the lies of the world, to replace the thoughts that we come up with that are negative and repetitive, the things that the world has for us that are weak and worthless. Father God, we praise you, Lord, for the truth, the powerful, effective truth. God, we confess that we've had desires for things that are not you, things that are not Jesus, things that are not for his glory and his praise and his exaltation. Lord, so often we have to confess we find those things boring. God, we think of those things as irrelevant. God, we don't want anything to do with that, Lord. We want more attention, more praise for ourselves. We want more money or glory or things. God, we want people to think about us. We want people to be impressed with us. God, we confess that to you, Lord. When we come to your word and we see who Jesus is and he changes us from within, God, we want him to be praised. We want people to know about him. We want to be those who praise him and, and share his name and his truth with those around us. God, I pray that you would make that true in each of us. Lord, help us to be devoted to Jesus. He's worthy of our devotion. We're not. Father, the things in this world are not worthy of our devotion. They're weak and they're worthless, Lord. The, the demons come behind those idols that we worship and that we want to worship. God, keep us from that. Lord, show us how to grow in faith and love. Lord, that we would love Jesus, that we'd love those around us. God, teach us to love ourselves less, others more, and Christ most. In his precious and holy and worthy name we ask this. Amen.